Well, this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. No surprise there, we are in Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, this is a remarkable section of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 8 is dealing with um, really so much concerning the coming of the new covenant. And so I entitled this sermon this morning, Out with the Old and In with the New. I got to tell you, being saturated over the past couple of weeks in um, page after page after page of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, just refreshing uh, my own thinking on the matter of covenants, uh, has been absolutely uh, overwhelming and uh, joy-producing, and it has made me feel utterly inadequate to even try to bring um, any kind of, of clarity and substance to uh, the greatness of what God has done for us as his people. Um, I would just say that my cup is is running over, and there is a sense in which uh, seeing God's loyal love to his people uh, in his promises and in his covenants is just uh, leaves you speechless. It's absolutely remarkable uh, what he has done for us. Uh, when you think about uh, your life on this earth, Um, Your life is filled in many ways with promises, some that are kept and some that are broken. Right? Oftentimes we have broken promises in life. If you remember in the 90s, there was the uh, large men's conference movement that kind of swept the nation called Promise Keepers. I was still a boy at the time, so no one ever invited me. I probably would have gone if I'd gotten the invite, but Promise Keepers was this big movement. And uh, I remember hearing a man open the scripture and say, you know, a better name for the conference would have been promise breakers, right? Men who have failed to live up to the covenant relationship they've promised to their wives in marriage, failed to live up to God's call and holy standard as a father or as an employee or as a churchman. And so when you think about your life, your life is littered with broken promises. Uh, You know, the heartache of being on the backside of broken promises uh, sometimes they're they're very minimal, just mildly irritating, right? Hey, I, I promise I will call you in two minutes. And two days later, you haven't gotten a phone call, right? That's That can be irritating, but generally speaking, that's something you can get over. But then there's promises that you might have in your life that have been broken where it's, it's a deep level of betrayal. Uh, maybe a promise that was made that was broken and a, a solemn oath like marriage that was violated. But the truth of the matter is, is, as humans, we break promises, uh, sometimes because we say something that we don't intend to actually keep. Uh, sometimes we have the best of intentions, we make a promise, and then we're just unable to carry it out. Sometimes we make a promise, if you're anything like me, and then you forget that you made the promise. That can happen. So when we come to Hebrews 8, what we find is that we have a God who makes promises, and when he makes a promise, he keeps it. He's the only one who's ever made a promise and, and never failed to deliver on it. Uh, there's nothing that could ever prevent him, nothing in his own character. He could never forget about it. No one's ever strong enough to stop him. And so when God makes a promise, most assuredly, he will keep that promise. It's unlike any promise that you've ever known before. And so when we come to Hebrews 8, uh, we're going to slow down. Uh, normally, we kind of move through paragraph by paragraph. We're just going to slow the reel down a bit here because I want to grasp the significance here of the promised plan of God as it worked throughout Scripture. 
Here's maybe a way to illustrate why I think it's so important that we slow down and understand what it really means to be part of the new covenant. Imagine you're hearing on the playground, two children, we'll say they're siblings, there's an older and a younger. The older is instructing the younger sibling and how they should conduct themselves in the playground. And the younger one says, I don't have to do what you say. You're not the boss of me. And America is a free country. Perhaps you've heard that. Perhaps you've used that argument. I remember that going around growing up in our house. America is a free country. I don't have to do what you're telling me to do. It's an unjust authority that is oppressing me. But, but as true as that statement is, right, to sit down with someone who stormed the shores of Normandy in World War II, the idea that America is a free country means something a little bit different, does it not? It's, it's true insofar as it goes for that child to understand I'm, I'm living in a free country and I have some sense of what that means. There's a different weightiness when you understand the history of how it is that we actually got to this free country, the significance of what happened to get us to this place. And so my concern is that we come to the new covenant oftentimes and we say, yeah, I'm part of the new covenant. And we just kind of move on and we sound like that younger sibling on the playground that although true, maybe our are failing to capture a bit of the significance and the wonder of all the history that's come before and what it actually means to be in relationship with God through the new covenant. My friends, God could have orchestrated and arranged salvation in countless ways. He had limitless opportunities, and yet he chose to relate to his people specifically in the form of a covenant. Covenants are not the theme of the Bible. Um, theologians argue and debate over what the theme of Scripture is. Uh, some would say the theme of Scripture is Christ. Some would say the theme of Scripture is redemption or grace. Some would say that the theme of Scripture is the promise of God, the promise plan of God, the glory of God. Um, unfortunately, if you turn to the, the front of your Bible, there's no inspired page that says, here's the theme of Scripture, and so we'll just continue to debate those things until Christ returns. But I think kingdom is a pretty helpful motif to understand the arc of Scripture, really from creation to redemption, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, is that, that God is the king that rules over all of the earth. Uh, he delegates authority in his kingdom, beginning with Adam in the garden, who loses that kingdom domain, and then God sends a redeemer and reclaims that kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. He's establishing a kingdom on earth. And yet the vehicle by which he does that is covenants. And you begin to study this with me today. What is going to fill your heart and mind is the reality that if you're in a covenant relationship with God, it's because God initiated the relationship. God's the one who sought you out. God's the one who invented the covenant. God is the one who took the fulfillment of the covenant and put it on his own back. God is the one who gave you great promises in his covenant. And so this morning, what we're going to see is the author here in Hebrews 8 begins to talk now very clearly in plain language about why we've been discussing this transition for so many chapters. We keep talking about the old and the new. We keep talking about how Jesus is a better prophet. Jesus is a better son. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better king. 
Jesus is a better revelation. And what he's going to ground this in right now is in what has taken place in the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. So that's why Jesus is better in all these arenas. Now, as I said last week, this quote beginning in verse 8 down through verse 12 is the longest single citation of the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament. Okay, just to, to put that in perspective for a moment, the Old Testament is directly quoted in the New Testament 250 times. You can debate over how many times it's alluded to, but it's somewhere between 800 and 1,000 times when you put it all together, direct quotations and allusions. So out of somewhere between 800 to 1,000 times that the Old Testament is referenced in the New Testament, this is the longest single citation anywhere in the Bible of the Old Testament. The connection is deep. It's to begin to show how it is that God was relating to his people for the, the 1,500 years leading up to the New Covenant and how these relate. And so Jesus comes, and when he comes, he changes things. And the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 8, verse 6, and says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, we know that there was a change in the New Testament. Something happened. Right after all, it's called the New Testament. Origin was the one that added that nomenclature. We know about new wine and new wineskins. We know about the new man, the new people of God, which is the church. We know about the old passing away and new things coming. All of this is because of the new covenant, the new deal, the new arrangement. And that is the focal point today. The author says, Christ himself has received, he's obtained, he's gained, now a better ministry. That's a, a better service. The emphasis is on the role. So every arrangement about relating to God through Jesus Christ is better than any previous arrangement of how you might relate to God through a man. And so we see here that the author is drawing a comparison. And he's saying that one of these things is superior and one of these things is inferior. And normally when we think about comparing things, right? we tend to be a little bit careful with that. We want to be politically correct. We don't want to compare in a way that would make someone feel inferior to someone else. Right here, the author has no problem saying that when you compare these two things, there is one that is very much superior and one that is very much inferior. It's by design. One is better than the other, and it's not a mistake. And I was trying to think about the idea of, of taking two things that are related, but they're different, and one is much better, and everyone's okay with it. Um, and so I was, I was looking for what is the, what is the greatest discrepancy in uh, two trims for a vehicle, and it's actually the Ford F-150. Uh, so the, the cheapest Ford F-150 is, is right around or just under $30,000. And then the, the most loaded version is... $76,000. And so the gap there is over double the price, right, to have a, a fully loaded Ford F-150 or to have the, the stripped down model. And so Ford is not embarrassed uh, that one of their trucks is superior to the other, uh, right? They have no, no uh, way that they're trying to hide that as if it's a problem. 
Uh, rather, they've designed both of these, and they're both vehicles that are going to get you where you need to go, and yet they're saying one of these is actually far superior in terms of all the features and benefits than the other. And so when Jesus receives this ministry, uh, this is a much more excellent ministry because he's mediating a much better covenant. The old covenant was sufficient so far as it went, but it is inferior. So Jesus comes, superior ministry to Moses and Aaron and every other prophet or priest from the Old Testament because he administers a new covenant. It has new bells and whistles, new offerings, new features and benefits. And this is a better ministry because it is sitting on a better covenant. So look at right there in the text. It says, since it is enacted on better promises. So what does this mean? It means God promises things for his people in the new covenant that they didn't get in the old administration. Certain perks, if you will. Uh, he's redefined what it means to be a believer, and it's much better to be a believer because you're promised better things in the new covenant than you ever would have gotten in the inadequate previous covenant. He goes on to explain right here in the text, 4, verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if that previous arrangement didn't have any issues, I wouldn't have anything to write about right now. He's saying we'd, we'd still be under Moses. We'd still be living in the old covenant. Uh, the only reason why it had to get replaced, why there was succession, was because there was built-in obsolescence from the beginning. You think about this. Why is it that they knew that this covenant was with fault? Well, all the writer of Hebrews is thinking about it is because the prophets began to foretell of a new relationship that God was going to create with his people. Jeremiah talked about it. It's in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. And so the way the author of Hebrews is reasoning is, is the covenant was obviously faultless because prophets started to talk about a new relationship, a new covenant that God was going to begin to establish with his people. See, talking about your intentions clarifies what you intend to do. I mean, can you imagine just it's a little bit of a rough example, but I think it, it makes the point. Imagine uh, you have a, a married couple and one spouse keeps talking all the time saying things like, well, soon in my next marriage, I will... Right? What does that begin to indicate? Well, you're, you're already thinking about a new covenantal relationship while we're still in this current one. And so while God is relating to his people mediated through the Mosaic covenant, and that's how they're relating to the Lord and they're in covenant, you have the Lord saying, I'm actually going to replace this with a new relationship, new terms. A new covenant is coming. And this, of course, was a wonderful thing. Unlike my previous example, this is uh, like saying um, to your existing spouse, hey, I would like to, to renew our vows. And when I renew our vows, there's some things that I want to say that I didn't say before. 
I want to establish this marriage in a, in a deeper understanding now that I understand more what marriage is all about. And maybe I understand the covenant relationship. And so I want to go back and I want to redo those promises that we originally took. And I want to recommit to you in a new way with better promises. That's kind of starting to get the idea here of, of what it would have meant for God to be speaking about this new covenant that was coming in the midst of the existing covenant. And so there was an occasion sought for the second. It was demonstrating by the fact that God was saying a new covenant was coming, that the old covenant was inferior. And so what was it that God said? Well, verse 8 While they were in the middle of the old covenant, he said, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and upon their hearts I will write them and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. See, when God uttered those words that we just read, they came through the prophet Jeremiah at a very dark time in Israel's history. And they would have gotten these words and been filled with a sense of anticipation. And compared to the, the struggles that we're having right now under the old administration, how poorly things are going as a nation, this sounds really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to the enacting of this new covenant. What's interesting here is there's a lot happening that they couldn't have seen. For example, the church who partakes in the new covenant isn't described anywhere in these verses. Right? That was still a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament. And yet what's clear is that the, the author is reminding the Hebrews as they're sitting out there in the congregation, I don't want you to go back to the old covenant because the old covenant was replaced by a new covenant and you can't have two covenants operating at the same time. And so when a new one comes, according to verse 13, it makes the old obsolete, the old has to pass away, and now the new one is the one that's in function. So you can only have one covenant in function at a time. The old passes away. The new is now what is in function. So I thought for a minute, what makes sense is to really establish a framework of a biblical theology of covenants. And so I want to take you back into the Old Testament this morning, and I want to show you how these connect, how they begin to lead up. And here's why I'm doing that, because For us to to benefit the most from the text of Scripture is to be as close to what the original hearers were experiencing as possible. And so we have a large knowledge gap to try to get our thinking all the way back to where they were so that then as we read what was written to them, it just starts to make sense and come together exactly what those implications are. So to start, uh, before I take you to the Old Testament, I just want to define what a covenant is. Lots of different ways of describing it, but essentially it's a formal agreement between two parties on how they're going to relate to one another. And in the case of God and man, it's always God initiating the covenant. 
Okay, so it's a formal agreement of how two parties are going to relate together. In the case of God and man, God is always the one who initiates, and it's always gracious. God is the one who undertakes it graciously. Now, when you begin to talk about covenants, you're necessarily going to get into and touch on a system of theology. So perhaps you're familiar with the term covenantalism or covenantal theology, covenant theology. Perhaps you're familiar with the term dispensationalism. Perhaps you've never heard either of those terms before. Um, you're probably in a better spot if you've heard them. We're going we're gonna to try to not uh, take you too deep into all of these things. But essentially, uh, these are two broad ways of trying to describe how do we understand the relationship in big picture of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so covenant theology is going to see um, a lot of things, there's an oversimplification, but is being very much the same. So this would be a, a high degree of continuity. Things are the same. Dispensationalism would be discontinuity. It would be viewing things as uh, more changes and more differences as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, I do not believe covenant theology is biblical. I think there's some really good things that you can learn from covenant theology, and so there's some points that are scriptural. Um, classic dispensationalism also is a system that's read over scripture that finds a lot of things in the scripture that aren't there. And so if you're trying to peg me down and you'll see where I stand as we go through this, um, I would be just over the fence on the side of the dispensational convictions um, while actually seeing a lot more continuity in scripture and um, embracing many tenets of covenant theology that were rejected by kind of classic dispensationalism. So if you just, I'm right perfectly in the middle, if you want to see, right? That's how I do it. This side, there's this side, and then I'm, I'm just perfectly in the middle. Uh, that's not how I intended to say that. Uh, the point being that dispensationalism, the basic convictions of how you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, we would affirm uh, without some of the extra things that are added to the scriptures. So the first question ultimately is this. How many covenants are there in Scripture? Okay, If we're going to understand here that there's certain covenants that have passed away, or at least an old covenant that's passed away and a new has come, what is still in force today and what has been left behind? Right? And so suddenly we go from this theoretical discussion about systems of theology to something that's very pertinent. When you read your Bible, what covenants are, are you connected to or involved in? What covenants are you not involved in? Uh, what is enforced today and what is not? And so these are very tangible questions, very pertinent. When you begin to think about a covenant, I want to stick with the language of Scripture. You read about covenants in Scripture. Uh, the word for covenant is barit. And oftentimes when barit, a covenant is established, uh, we read a verb right next to that. And in your English, you would read uh, made a covenant, established a covenant, something along those lines. In the Hebrew, in the original, the word was cut. You would cut a covenant. Uh, this was karat. It uh, could be used for uh, cutting down trees. So you go out to a tree and you chop it down. That would be karat. Uh, if you were to cut a piece of clothing or cloth with scissors, that would be karat. If you were to cut off a body part, that was karat in 2 Samuel 20. But it's also used metaphorically to describe um, the establishment, in this case, of a covenant. And it would be the idea of, of ratifying a covenant as you would uh, cut animals into two pieces 
and separate them on both sides. And then the two people that were joining in the covenantal relationship would walk between those animals who'd just been cut. And what they were saying was, if you break the covenant, you get to end up like one of these animals. And if I break the covenant, I get to end up like one of these animals. So to cut a covenant, very specifically in the ancient Near East, was language that everyone knew, not just those who were in the Bible, but outside of the Bible. If you're making a covenant, you'd say, hey, let's grab an animal here. We're going to cut it into two pieces. We're going to separate it. We're going to make our agreement rather than a, a spit shake or signing on the dotted line. We're both going to walk together through the animals. And we're going to say, if either of us breaks the agreement that we're making right now, may what happened to these animals happen to us. The idea of cutting a covenant. Why is that important? Well, because to begin, if you were to hold to covenant theology, and there's uh, disagreement among different uh, scholars, which is okay, that happens. Uh, but they would begin with the idea that, that uh, Scripture is held together by a covenant of redemption that took place in eternity past uh, in an inter-Trinitarian council where God established a covenant with himself to save mankind. Simple question is this. Um, what, what page of the Bible speaks of this covenant that took place in the Trinitarian councils before the creation of the world? Certainly we see God's eternal purpose in Ephesians 1. He was purposing to save people. But even among theologians, they can't quite determine whether it was a covenant pact between the Father and the Son or whether it involved all the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then clarity on who had what role and what the consequences and the benefits were as they promised to one another. And so at the very beginning, the idea of the, the covenant of redemption, although we would affirm, yes, in fact, God, before the foundation of the world, according to the good pleasure of his will, intended to save his people, Ephesians 1. That's a little different than saying that's a covenant of redemption. Now, why am I being a stickler here for the use of the word? Well, I think language is very important. Language is very important. And so we don't want to take the word covenant and just begin to slap it to concepts that are in the scriptures if they aren't actually, in fact, covenants. God certainly had access to the word covenant. He could have used it anywhere he wanted to, anytime he wanted to. And yet the idea is that if, if we have a covenant, it, it implies a formal relationship with binding legal obligations, with consequences and benefits. And so we want to use that language when we find that in Scripture. Michael Horton, prominent covenant theologian, says a broad consensus has emerged in Reformed theology. So he would put an equal sign between Reformed theology and covenant theology. Uh, we would just put a slash through that equal sign and say you could still hold to the tenets of grace and a reformed perspective on Scripture upholding the solas without affirming covenant theology. Uh, but he would go on and say that in Scripture there are three distinct covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of creation, and the covenant of grace. And so they would view that this covenant of redemption happened uh, before time began. Then in the covenant of creation, it would be God putting Adam in the garden. And when he said, hey, you need to cultivate the land... And if you eat from the tree, uh, then you're going to die surely in that day that God was establishing the covenant of works with Abraham, or excuse me, with Adam. Now certainly we see God putting Adam in the garden. We see him establishing a relationship. But do we have any language that indicates that there was a covenant taking place? Certainly one that would cause a theologian to say there's three covenants in Scripture and this is one of the three. 
Ultimately, then, they would say that the covenant of grace was enacted, arguably, either in Genesis 3.15, when God promised uh, that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, that either at that moment the covenant of grace was enacted, or, or it was enacted at the promise that God gave to Abraham. But covenant theology would view, then, Scripture through the lens of these three covenants. I myself sympathetic to what John Zenz says. When he says a Christian theologian should use biblical terms in their biblical meaning. And so he asks, is it valid to take the covenant concept and employ it as a theological catch-all without careful regard for how the word covenant is employed in Scripture? So he's saying, I get a little concerned when we take a word that has a very significant defined meaning, and then we begin to apply it to other things. What happens? We begin to diminish the significance of that word. Do you think about just in our modern age, we see this happen all the time. You take a lot of buzzwords that are happening in the culture, all right? Uh, we've now begun to uh, redefine what it means to be harmed. Uh, we've redefined uh, what it means to be a victim. Uh, we've redefined what it means to experience abuse or trauma. Um, I'm not saying those things don't exist. In fact, they do exist, and that's my concern is that when you begin to take those words and apply new meanings to them, what happens is you actually lose the significance of what they actually mean and what they're intended to communicate. And so my presupposition here is that when we use the word covenant, it's a biblical word that comes from pages of Scripture, and so we want to apply it where God applies it. And so with that being said, that introduction, the first place that we find a covenant in Scripture It's back in Genesis, no surprise there, Genesis chapter 9. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. I probably should have told you this morning when you came in that it's going to feel like you're sitting through a lecture today. That's not my intention. Probably would have helped to set expectations. A little bit technical, but I promise if you hang with me, it will be all worth it in the end. Genesis chapter 9. Noah has just gotten off the boat. God has preserved his family. He reissues essentially the directive that was given to Adam, where Adam failed. Uh, Now that he's the only family, he says in verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every uh, bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are given. He goes on and begins to t- establish government and the idea of, of uh, when someone takes a life unjustly, uh, they are to be put to death by another man. Then God spoke in verse 8 to Noah and to his sons with him saying, As for me, behold, I establish my berit, my covenant, with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, indeed I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. And there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. 
And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. My friends, here's the first example of a bona fide covenant in Scripture. You have God coming to Noah. He initiates. He seeks Noah out. And he comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I'm going to do something for you. I'm sure that after what you just experienced, right? We could give, I'm sure, a lot of names for that experience. You have some kind of legitimate trauma or PTSD as you just saw the entire earth and every living creature destroyed except for who was on the boat. That as he's stepping out onto dry land and he's recognizing, okay, we dealt with the evil that was outside of the boat. Now what do we do about the evil that was inside of the boat? What do we do about the evil that's in my heart? Is not perhaps God going to destroy the earth again by a flood? And God says, I want you to understand that I'm going to make a covenant right now. I'm going to vow. Here's how the relationship between me and all of creation is going to work. Never again will there be a flood. You understand that when God made this covenant, he knew exactly what was going to happen in terms of humanity. If you look back up in chapter 8, verse 21... The Lord says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So God says, I'm not requiring anything of you, Noah, for the terms of this relationship and this agreement. Instead, what God is saying is, humanity is going to continue to rebel every thought of the intention of his heart is evil from the beginning. And yet what I'm going to do is I'm going to promise to graciously never again destroy the earth with a flood the way I just destroyed the earth with a flood. You understand how, how passive Noah is in this arrangement as God comes and pursues him in this way and establishes a promise? And then he says, my promise is so sure I'm going to give you a sign, just a little reminder, and I'm going to put a bow in the sky. And every time you see the bow in the sky, what you're going to remember is, verse 16 there's an everlasting covenant that exists between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, this is a foundation really for God beginning to make a promise to humanity in this way. And yet the Noahic covenant, which is the first explicit covenant in Scripture, is not a salvific covenant. It's not really in the arc of God bringing about a redemptive purpose per se. It's a promise that uh, God is going to provide for him with a lack of destruction. And so if you want to find the first redemptive covenant in Scripture, and I'm sure you're already anticipating this, it comes to us in Genesis chapter 12. So turn over to Genesis chapter 12. my notes there. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to see something very similar in how God begins to engage with Abram. He says in chapter 12 verse 1, the Yahweh said to Abram, 
Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern culture. But right now what we have is what would be known as a royal land grant. Okay, this is a situation that they would have understood, almost like real estate terms that we would have today. And this is where a king who owned a piece of land uh, would give essentially as a reward to a faithful citizen a piece of land and say, here, this is now for you and for your posterity. Out of the generosity of what I own, I am now going to transfer the ownership and I'm going to give this to you as a promise. Again, you begin to see here. Who initiated this relationship? It's Yahweh, right? He comes and finds Abram the Gentile, who's in a different land. And he, he taps him on the shoulder, as it were, and he says, I have a promise that I want to make to you. I want to bless you. I want to give you land. I want to make your name great. And in exchange, what do I want? See, that, that part of the, the relationship almost would be appearing to be missing. And yet that's the very point. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 13. Actually, we'll start back up in verse 9. Abram is wondering, how do I know that God is going to make good on this promise to me? I can't see the Lord. It seems great what he's giving to me. Verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old male female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then Abram brought all of these to the Lord and split them into parts down the middle and laid each part opposite the other, but he did not split apart the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now it happened when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now it happened that the sun had set and it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Does Abraham walk through the pieces? He doesn't, right? He's sleeping. Who walks through the pieces? Well, it's a, it's a theophany. It's God revealing himself here as a smoking oven and a flaming torch that's who passes through the pieces. Verse 18, on that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram saying to your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. 
Abraham, are you concerned that I'm not going to give you the land I promised to give you? I'm not going to make your name great, that you're not going to be a blessing? Here's what I'm going to do. Go get some animals. We're going to cut them apart. We're going to lay them out. And then we're going to, no, not we. I'm going to pass through. And in that day, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And I'm going to establish this as a promise forever. How do you know it's going to be forever? Well, if you look right there in chapter 17, when the Lord again confirms this covenant, the Lord tells Abraham, chapter 17, verse 2, I may confirm my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. Abram falls on his face, verse 3, and God speaks to him and says, I want you to know as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And here comes a clue that we haven't had yet. And I will make nations of you and kings, hang on to that, kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations. For how long? for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. So when God swears his covenant and cuts his covenants dependent upon one person and one person alone, it is himself. And when he establishes it, he says, this isn't a temporary agreement. It's not a temporary arrangement. This isn't just a, a mere dispensation for a short period of time. Rather, what I'm vowing to you right now, Abraham, has implications for all of eternity because this is a covenant that could never be threatened. It can't be abolished. It can't be superseded. And so as we begin to think about our clues here, we're saying, okay, we just read about a covenant being obsolete in Hebrews chapter 8. By process of elimination, clearly it's not the Noahic covenant that passed away. That was an everlasting covenant. Clearly it's not the Abrahamic covenant. That was an everlasting covenant that God had made. Yet here in this passage, there is already an expectation that this covenant is going to mean something not just for Abraham and not just for his physical descendants, but for the whole world. He says that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in fact, throughout all those generations, this will be an everlasting covenant. Move on to our next covenant that is promissory in nature. This one appears in 2 Samuel. So you're jotting down your unilateral covenants here, which are made by God, and essentially he takes all the responsibility of fulfilling it on himself. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we pick up on that clue word about a king that we just saw in the Abrahamic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build a house for the Lord. The Lord said, I'm sorry, you have too much blood on your hands. You're not going to do that. But nevertheless, he gives David a promise. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, Nathan comes with a message, and here it is. So now thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be a ruler 
over my people Israel. Who sought David? It was the Lord. Who found him when he was doing a total different vocation? It was the Lord who had his eye on him. He goes on in verse 9, I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Suddenly you're hearing echoes of the great name of Abraham that was promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. He goes on and says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again and the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly. So he's saying, not only are you going to have this land, but you're going to be in a spot in the land where you have peace from your enemies. You have prosperity and protection. Again, this is coming right out of the Abrahamic covenant. It sounds very familiar to us. He goes on and says, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. A house was the heritage. So uh, not just the building or a palace, but the idea that you would have a lineage was the idea of a house. He says then in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your Interesting, same word as as Abraham, a seed after you, another promised descendant who's coming, who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. You say, okay, well, surely that's Solomon that he's speaking of. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Okay, that's Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so suddenly you realize, okay, we have a little bit of that messianic language here where David is God's son and Jesus will be God's son, the promised seed. And so we're interlocuting between the two of them. He says in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. That would be Solomon. I'll reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Do you understand the connections there? Do you see the connections that the Lord is making? Where you're taking the Abrahamic covenant and now you're reiterating certain points and you're starting to sharpen the clarity here on that seed that is coming, that it's going to be a royal seed who has this everlasting throne and everlasting kingdom. And again, you find this is a covenant that is not dependent upon David doing anything. It doesn't say if you're faithful, if you walk in my ways. This is going to be ultimately dependent upon the Lord. And so we have another covenant in the Old Testament. We have the Noahic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the Davidic covenant. And so far what we've seen is all of these are everlasting covenants. All of these are marked as those that are going to keep enduring all of those are going to be seeing their fulfillment in this promised seed that is coming, which of course we know is Jesus the Messiah. And so if we count down our covenants, right? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is going away. Right? It has to be the Mosaic Covenant. And obviously you've anticipated that if you've been in Hebrews because you understand that we're talking about the Levitical priesthood. You understand that we're talking about Moses. And yet to see in Scripture that if you were a Jew, you would have known God has made promises to me, to my people, and to the world through us that, that are going to be everlasting in these covenant promises. 
And now here we are finding out that one of these covenants is going to be obsolete. Obviously, it has to be the Mosaic covenant. And so turn with me there briefly, and I want to just take a peek at this this morning. I'm just going to introduce it, and then we're going to have to come back to it later today. No, next week we'll come back to it. The Mosaic Covenant comes, and this is where you hear the word law often. Uh, This was the instruction of God, the Torah. It was the agreement, the arrangement that he set with his people. And yet this had a great deal of background in uh, the work that the Lord had done, and not only that, but in the idea of ancient Near Eastern covenants. See, the Lord comes, and he begins with a prologue. He says in verse uh, chapter 19 of Exodus, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on this day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. So Moses is running back and forth between the people and the Lord. And yet, what strikes you automatically after just reading the Noahic Covenant, reading the Abrahamic Covenant, reading the Davidic Covenant, here we come to covenant language, and what do we find? Suddenly, there's this responsibility of the people to keep the covenant. Right? And I understand that Abraham had to, to observe circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant. It, it was not ever the basis. Here we find introduced this contingency, this dependency based upon the performance of the people. I mean, look at verse 5 again. So then now, if you will indeed, if, if, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, if you keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so what we'll look at next week is, is, is the, the foundation of this covenant was an ancient Near Eastern covenant of a, a suzerain vassal treaty where there was a, a powerful king that had conquered and in behalf of the weaker king would begin to bestow benefits of protection and care for that weaker king, provided that the weaker king would pay homage to the more powerful king. And so right there in the Exodus, Israel had vivid imagery that we'll begin to see of the relationship that God was entering in with them. And it wasn't completely separated from the Abrahamic covenant. It was coming in that same flow and uh, flow vein of God's ultimate faithfulness. 
And yet it was the temporary arrangement by which God was saying, you're going to relate to me. And how you're going to relate to me, Israel, after I bring you out of Egypt, is actually going to be related to your faithfulness to the covenant. My friends, the hope of Israel then, when the new covenant was coming, was that they had been under a covenant where their performance actually changed their experience of blessings and cursings. And so when Jesus came in the new covenant, he had become the curse of the law. He had fulfilled the Mosaic law in every portion of his obedience. He provided the ultimate sacrifice. And then the relationship offered in the new covenant, back in Hebrews chapter 8, is what? The law of God written on the heart. It's people who are regenerated. And then it's everyone who belongs to God is is part of his family and there's no contingency any longer on relating to him by keeping his covenant promises. And so the new covenant was something that Israel was looking forward to in expectation. We're going to see how, uh, as we examine the Mosaic covenant in greater detail next week, how when they began to hear of the prophets telling of the, the coming day, they weren't able to fully see what was going to happen when Jesus came. And yet they knew that they were struggling with the external law that was written outside of them and they, they needed God to come and do a, a better work that would be an, in, an inward renewal on their hearts. Well, as we get preparing for communion in just a moment, uh, you can't help but think that when Jesus walked the earth in his preaching ministry, he never talked explicitly about the new covenant in name until that last Passover meal. Right, and now you hear when he gave that cup, he said, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. What he was referring back to is Exodus chapter 24. When the covenant was ratified, blood had to be spilled. And when blood was spilt, at that moment, the covenant was now inaugurated and it was put in place. And so for Jesus to come and bring this new covenant that would cause the old covenant to pass away, the old jurisdiction, there had to be the shedding of blood. I invite Zach to come up here at this time. And uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll begin to prepare for communion. Uh, Lord in heaven, uh, I know that was a lot of information to take in, frankly. I've been uh, overwhelmed the past two weeks trying to get um, uh, what turned into many, many, many pages of information into something that would be um, understandable and useful for us here. Uh, Lord, you are vast, and your word is vast, but we do want to Um, see what it is that you've given us and not like the little kid on the playground but but one who's actually seen with great experience um, the fullness of the salvation that we've received paul would pray to the church and ask that or pray for the church and ask that the saints would be able to comprehend uh, the love of god which was for them in christ jesus because it was so hard to get their minds around and so lord i pray that you would be wetting our appetite even uh, to understand more about uh, the covenant love of our God. Uh, Lord, even as we think about the word has said and the loyal love that you have for your people, that is so connected to your covenant and to your promise. And so, Lord, we want to understand these things that we might worship you and uh, that we might have great joy uh, because of what you've done for us through Christ. Uh, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray that you'd bless us now as we gather around your table for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.